This is Yehuda HaKohen, Brit Chazon, Vision Movement, Vision Magazine, and you are listening to the Next Stage Podcast. Today, the 10th of Tammuz marks the Yom Ptira, the Yerzeit, the anniversary of when the State of Israel's greatest Prime Minister left our world. And I'm, of course, speaking about Prime Minister Yitzhak Shamir, who passed away on this date eight years ago. Now, despite his many contributions to the Jewish people as the operational leader of Lehi, the Lachamecherot Israel, the Fighters for the Freedom of Israel, as a top agent for the Mossad in Europe, and as Israel's strongest prime minister, Yitzchak Shamir has all but been written out of history. So I really hope I can contribute to challenging this erasure by dedicating this week's episode of The Next Stage to telling Yitzchak Shamir's story. Also, by discussing the many important and heroic deeds carried out by Shamir on behalf of our people, I hope this episode can also serve to elevate his soul. So, Lelui Nishmat Yitzchak ben Shlomo, for the elevation of the soul of Yitzchak, the son of Shlomo, I'd like to present the story of Yitzchak Shamir. So, Shamir was actually born Yitzchak Yitzernitsky in Ruzhenoi, Belarus, to a traditional Jewish family in 1915. His father, Shlomo, was a leather worker and head of the local Jewish community who provided his son with a Hebrew day school education. Now, violent expressions of anti-Semitism were really regular occurrences in the small border town of Ruzhenoi, which often changed hands between Russia and Poland at the time. And in 1929, Yitzchak joined Ze'ev Jabotinsky's revisionist Zionist Beitar Youth Movement. Occupying the right wing of the Zionist political spectrum, Beitar emphasized honor and a militant nationalism that very much appealed to young Jews in Eastern Europe who had experienced a lot of anti-Semitic violence and intimidation growing up. Yitzchak enrolled at the University of Warsaw and began studying law, but this didn't last long. His attention was far more focused on the ingathering of the Jewish people back to the land they'd been displaced from 2,000 years earlier. And just to give an example of what his thinking was at the time, I want to share a quote where he says, what moved me and was to capture my attention undiminished for the rest of my life was the return of the Jews to the land of Israel, a drive so intense, an idea so powerful, that all other options before me in Warsaw could in no way compete. So Yitzchak dropped out of law school and moved home to Palestine in 1935. At first, he found work as a construction worker, and then later as an accountant, He enrolled in Jerusalem's Hebrew University, but when Palestine's British rulers incited Arab violence against the local Jewish population, Yitzchak joined the Etzel, the Irgun Svalumi, the National Military Organization, and became both an intelligence agent and a fighter in a unit responsible for reprisal attacks on Arab targets. Now, it was around this time that the Yitzernitsky family in Ruzhenoi Yitzchak's parents and two sisters were rounded up by the invading Germans and ultimately killed in the Shoah. And when a number of Etzel commanders 
led by Avraham Stern, better known as Yeir, came to the conclusion that the fight for Jewish liberation must be directed against British imperialism, Yitzchak joined them in breaking away from the Etzel and establishing a revolutionary underground that would ultimately become known as Lechi, the Lochamei Cherut Yisrael, the fighters for the freedom of Israel. Now, Lechi had reached radical conclusions. Most of the Jewish community in Palestine had naturally assumed that the Arab community was the enemy. The British had done a really great job in inciting the Arab and Jewish populations against one another, and with the violence that had really become commonplace in the country by the late 1930s, it was natural for both sides to really see the other as the antagonist in the story they were living in. And it was really Yair, uh, Avram Stern, who, who took a step back, and possibly he was able to do this and he was able to apply more sophisticated uh, methods of analysis to the situation because, you know, growing up in a Marxist-Leninist youth movement, he might have been trained in, in a certain method of analysis. He said, wait a minute, the British ruler country, it's in the British Empire's interests for the Jews and the Arabs to fight one another. And there were clear examples of the British inciting the Arabs against us. But at the time, the way most Zionists looked at the situation was that the British, uh, when they would do things which were considered negative to the Jewish community, they were being pro-Arab. And a lot of the Palestinian Arabs, when they saw the British doing things that appeared to be um, pro-Israel, pro-Jewish, they would say, well, the British are being pro-Zionist, pro-Jewish, which is very similar to how we sometimes look at the United States today. Often when the United States uh, pushes an agenda that we identify as being somehow anti-Israel, we say, okay, they're siding with the Palestinians. And a lot of Palestinians might complain that when they see the United States doing things against their interests, they say, well, Washington is being pro-Israel. But in reality, um, the United States is advancing U.S. interests, and U.S. interests might perceive conflict between Jews and Palestinians as being beneficial, just like the British, when they ruled Palestine, were pursuing British interests. And those British interests, of course, saw conflict between local Jews and Arabs as being beneficial to their imperialist interests in the region. So it really was Yair who took a step back and said, wait a minute, the British are the enemy here. And not just in place of the local Arabs, but also in place of the Germans. Yair said the Germans, the Nazis, are the tsorer, they're the persecutor of Israel. And of course, that's problematic, but the British are the Oyev, they're the enemy, because the British are standing in the way of our liberation. The British are standing in the way of the Jewish people fulfilling our destiny. And part of that destiny, of course, involves rescuing the Jews trapped in Europe, in Nazi-occupied countries. And Yair understood that the only way to really save those Jews is to free our country, to free Palestine, so that those Jews would have somewhere to go.
And the way Yair and the way his group, including Shamir, tended to see the Second World War when it broke out, was that you have the Allies and you have the Axis, and they're each fighting one another to promote their own interests. But the Jews aren't necessarily on either side, or rather neither the Axis nor the Allies are really on the side of the Jews. Just as Hitler, Yemach Shemo, and the Nazi movement wants to destroy the Jewish people, although that wasn't fully clear at the time. At the time, the Nazi policy was really to find a place to put the Jews. It was only later with the Wannsee Conference in 1942 that the Nazi movement officially adopted the final solution to the Jewish problem, that they would actually commit genocide against the Jewish people. But at this point, it was very clear that the Nazis were anti-Jewish. But Yair said, they're the Tzorer. The British are the Oyev. And if we are going to fight on the side of the British, if we're going to fight on the side of the Allies, as the Zionists want to do, whether they be the labor Zionists or the revisionist Zionists, but the Zionists essentially agree that we have to fight on the side of the Allies against Hitler, Yair says, no, to fight on the side of the Allies would be an act of idolatry, unless the Allies provide us with a Jewish war interest. Now, that Jewish war interest could be rescuing Jews from Europe. It could be opening the gates of Palestine so that the Jews have somewhere to run to. It could be guarantees for political independence once the war is over. But there has to be some kind of Jewish interest. And that wasn't the attitude of the Zionist movement. And and I think one of the major differences is that the Zionist movement the entire Zionist movement, essentially, from the labor Zionists all the way to the revisionist Zionists, essentially looked at the Jewish people as an object with a problem. That problem could be anti-Semitism, that problem could be persecution, that problem could be Nazism, uh, that problem could be homelessness. Zionism was viewed as the solution to that problem, that we are going to create some kind of Jewish homeland in Palestine that will solve the problems that the Jewish people have. Now, Yair and the Lehi saw the Jewish people not as an object with a problem, but as a subject with desires, meaning there was a certain level of internal psychological freedom that the Lehi enjoyed. In fact, Yair would say, a freedom fighter is not one who fights to be free. A freedom fighter is one who fights because he's already free. And because he's already free, he's able to go and fight. Whereas those who are not able to fight, specifically in this case, fight the British, uh, were not able to fight because they weren't able to see that they were enslaved. They saw the British as potential allies. Maybe misunderstandings existed. That was, for the most part, the position of Zev Jabotinsky and the revisionist movement, that the Jewish people and the British Empire have misunderstandings. Maybe the Jews need to be more clear in asserting what we consider our rights to be, what our claims are, what we consider our claims to be, but we can't blame the British for not being more Zionist than the Zionists. Whereas Yair said, no, there is actually a fundamental conflict of interests between the British Empire and the children of Israel, and the only way for us to be able to pursue our national liberation is through war with the British Empire to free our land. And Yair and his followers understood this to require a certain level 
of internal liberation, a certain level of psychological liberation that allows us to then go and express that freedom through a material, physical, armed struggle for freedom. So in Lechi, Yitzchak Shemir chose the name Michael as his underground codename after the Irish Republican army leader, Michael Collins, who he had admired for his fighting the British Empire in Ireland. The sternists of Lechi declared the British presence in Palestine illegal and launched an urban guerrilla war to liberate the country from foreign rule. But the British were very experienced in putting down native uprisings, especially uprisings with minimal public support. The majority of Palestine's Jewish community were not free, and they didn't understand what the Lehi were fighting for, and hoped that the British would ultimately facilitate the creation of a Jewish state. So the Zionist movement very much threw its support behind the British war effort against Germany, and called on the Jewish youth to enlist in the British military. So this is why the Lehi, which had disassociated itself from the Zionist movement, claimed that it would be an act of idolatry for Jews to assist the British war effort without an agreement to fulfill any actual Jewish war interest. Essentially saying that without the British or the Allies agreeing to fulfill any Jewish national interest, it would be an act of treason against the Jewish struggle to draft into the British army. So the British regime hunted down the Lehi, killing and imprisoning most of the leadership. Michael was arrested in December 1941. After brief stints in the Yafo and Akko prisons, he was interned in the Mitzvah detention camp. And it was there that he received Yair's letter urging all incarcerated freedom fighters to escape. In February 1942, Yair was assassinated, shot dead while handcuffed by British detectives in Tel Aviv. The underground was essentially decimated, but Michael was determined to carry on the fight. In September 1942, he escaped from Mitzra and began to rebuild the Lehi with Nathaniel and Moore and Dr. Israel Shi. Yellen Moore took the name Gera, and Shib took the name Eldad, and the three comprised the center of the Lehi underground. Gera was the political leader, Eldad the ideologue, and Michael the operations commander. Michael got to work rebuilding Lehi from the ruins, fighter by fighter, action by action. At this time, he was disguising himself as the bearded Rabbi Shamir, hiding in the shadows of Tel Aviv. He established rules of secrecy and anonymity for the underground in order to prevent the British from destroying the movement again. He became close with his underground liaison, Shulamit, and the two eventually married and began a family, even though they're in the middle of a violent struggle for freedom. Later on, after the British were defeated and the State of Israel was declared, Gera would credit Shamir's will and cruelty with helping to raise Lehi from the ashes. And there's actually a quote from Michael regarding his work in Lehi that I think is really helpful to understanding his state of mind. He says, it's permitted to liberate a people even against its will or against the will of the majority. When we fought for freedom, 
for the establishment of a Jewish state, we didn't send a questionnaire to the Jewish nation asking if it wanted a Jewish state. Meaning that Shamir was acting on behalf of a nation that didn't necessarily consciously desire liberation. Meaning the colonization of the Jewish people had been so deep that even among the Jews who were interested in political independence in a Jewish state in Palestine, even they might not have supported an armed struggle for freedom against the British, not because they thought it was wrong, but because they thought it was fantasy. Because how can the Jewish people, if we understand what the Jewish people were in the 1940s, hope to be able to overcome one of the mightiest empires in the world? But obviously, Michael and his comrades saw their goals as not only possible, but also an imperative. And while rebuilding the underground, Michael insisted on personally interviewing nearly every recruit. Eldad recalls that this was really important for Lehi at that stage of rebirth, but that this trait would later slow down the movement when the number of potential fighters grew. In 1944, the Etzel, now under the command of Menachem Begin, joined the Lehi in their fight against the British regime. While on the surface, the two movements appeared to be waging the same struggle, there still existed a deep ideological difference between them. The Etzel fought against the oppressive British regime in an attempt to pressure London into adopting more pro-Israel policies. Remember, the Etzel still saw Zev Jabotinsky, who had already passed away by this time, but they still saw Zev Jabotinsky as their spiritual leader. And Jabotinsky, until his death, was essentially pro-British and saw the conflict between the Jewish people and the British Empire as one of misunderstanding, not as one of fundamental conflict. Lehi, by contrast, didn't fight against the oppressive British regime. The Lehi fought against the foreign regime in an effort to force the British to leave Palestine altogether. For Lehi, the war was against imperialism, which ultimately led to demonstrations of solidarity from other progressive movements and oppressed peoples throughout the world, including the Arab world. During this time, Lehi had developed a political outlook that applied Marxist principles to the Jewish people's struggle for liberation. The underground identified and targeted major British economic interests in Palestine, in order to make the price of occupation more expensive than the benefits of exploitation. One such example was the Haifa oil refinery, which the Lehi blew up on March 31, 1947. A blaze lit up the night sky for three weeks, and it was only half a year later that Britain announced it would withdraw from the country. Keep in mind that the British had very specific interests in the country. To the west, there's the Suez Canal. To the east, there's the oil, which was being piped underground to Haifa, which was a port city in Palestine. And from there, it'd be shipped to the empire. Once the oil refinery was destroyed, the British economic incentive to stay in Palestine was greatly diminished. Now, as the Cold War was beginning, the Lehi also formulated 
a very impressive foreign policy, the neutralization of the Middle East, which essentially called for the unity of all Semitic peoples and the removal of foreign actors, American and Soviet, from the region. The underground sent dozens of representatives abroad in order to establish diplomatic branches for the movement and to initiate relations with left-wing governments, institutions, and activists throughout the world. Despite the fact that the Lehi was weary of both American imperialism and Soviet imperialism, the underground clearly took positions that placed the movement more in the Soviet orbit. In the summer of 1946, Michael was caught during a four-day dragnet spread by the British over Tel Aviv. A policeman saw beyond his beard and Haredi clothes and recognized the underground leader's signature bushy eyebrows. Michael was locked up. Michael was locked up in the Jerusalem prison in solitary confinement, but was soon put on a plane for detention camp in Eritrea. While imprisoned, he wrote to his wife, I don't recognize or see the boundaries between the personal and impersonal. You might say everything is personal, one whole, one tome with different chapters, love of homeland and love of a precious beloved wife, missing one's brothers, the strong sons of the homeland, and missing one's sweet, cute son, flesh of my flesh. The boundaries are blurred. Everything is beloved and precious, so attractive and so missed. While in prison, Michael met a Vietnamese prisoner, a deputy of Ho Chi Minh, who introduced Shamir to the writings of Mao Zedong. In later life, Shamir would often call Mao a political and military genius and line his bookshelf with the Chinese revolutionaries' writings. The sternest ideology has actually been compared to early Maoist tendencies on the left in that it casts the guerrilla fighter as the revolutionary agent and applies Marxist teachings to the unique context of the Jewish people victimized by imperialism. In many ways, the Lehi understood itself as a continuation of the ancient Jewish freedom movements that fought the Greek and Roman empires. And many of those movements, most notably the Zealots and the Sicarii, were also fighting class struggles alongside their national struggles. Lehi very much took inspiration from those fights and from those movements. Michael escaped the detention camp in January 1947, but wasn't able to immediately return home. As the struggle for freedom was intensifying, the British announced on September 27, 1947, that they would retreat from the country and hand responsibility for Palestine over to the newly formed United Nations organization. Following the November 29, 1947 publication of UN General Assembly Resolution 181, calling for the partition of Palestine into two separate states, Lehi published a declaration opposing the resolution, stating that the freedom fighters of Israel will continue to fight for the unity of the land with the proper tactics for each time and place. In late 1947, a new Lehi daily, Hamivrak, began to appear. Under the headline, Our Vision for a Just State, the Lehi leadership called for a socialist orientation, expanding on views that had already been expressed in previous underground writings. 
In this essay, Lechi called for equal opportunity for every child, universal education, and a state of justice and equality. It was only after the British withdrew from Palestine and the state of Israel was declared that Michael was able to return home, a free man in his land. Michael, now Yitzhak Shamir, joined his Lechi comrades in creating the Fighters Party, the Lachamim, to compete in the new state's first parliamentary elections. Michael actually became the secretary general of the new party, which called for the entire land of Israel to come under Jewish sovereignty. It called for equality for Arabs and other non-Jewish populations. It called for a planned economy organized according to Marxist principles. It called for regional neutrality in the Cold War. The party opposed the colonial policies of the British mandate, most notably the defense emergency regulations being incorporated into the state of Israel's new legal system. And the party also called for a united front with the other Semitic peoples to protect the entire region from the designs of imperialist powers. The Luchamim, the Fighters Party, which was meant to further the Jewish liberation struggle, received only one seat in Israel's first Knesset. It was represented in parliament by Nathaniel Moore, but the party dissolved before being able to compete in further elections. After a brief stint in business, Shamir was recruited into the Mossad and served Israel in capacities that might never become public. He mostly worked in Europe, planning operations against Nazi war criminals and German scientists in Egypt. After retiring from the Mossad, he became active as an Israeli civilian in the struggle to free Jews trapped in the Soviet Union. In 1973, Shamir was recruited into the Likud party by former Etzel commander Menachem Begin. When Begin was elected prime minister in 1977, Shamir became speaker of the Knesset. He displayed his independence during the Begin years, opposing the surrender of the Sinai Peninsula to Egypt and abstaining in the votes on the Camp David Accords. In 1980, Shamir replaced Moshe Dayan as foreign minister and when Begin abruptly retired from public life in 1983, Shamir became Israel's seventh prime minister. Shamir, who had always been an advocate of quiet diplomacy and saw politics as war by other means, was very active in reestablishing relations with developing countries in places like Africa and elsewhere that had broken ties with Israel after the 1973 Yom Kippur War. Shamir also saw Israel's increasing military dependency on the United States as very dangerous, and he attempted to diversify Jerusalem's foreign policy by pivoting Israel towards the Soviet Union. Shamir served as prime minister from 1983 to 84 and again from 1986 to 92, leading his party to electoral victory twice, despite lacking much of the charisma that characterizes most modern political leaders. Barely over five feet tall and built like a block of granite, Shamir projected an image of uncompromising inner steel in the face of international hostility and pressure for Israel to relinquish parts of our land. A large percentage of the Israeli electorate trusted Shamir to protect the nation, and even those who disagreed with his principles couldn't help but be impressed with his selfless and single-minded commitment to those principles. As head of state, Shamir made it his mission 
to protect the land of Israel and fill her with Jews, bringing his exiled brothers and sisters home from places like Ethiopia and the former Soviet Union. When pressured by Washington to stop building new Jewish communities in the West Bank and Gaza regions, Shamir stood his ground and refused to allow foreign powers to dictate Jewish policies in Eretz Israel. The Israeli media began to nickname Shamir Mr. No, in reference to his refusal to submit to American demands. Now, exasperated with Shamir's resistance to Washington's interests in the Semitic region, U.S. President George H.W. Bush and Secretary of State James Baker interfered in Israel's political system to oust Shamir from office, hoping to replace him with the more cooperative Shimon Peres. The Americans did successfully take down Shamir, but they ended up with Rabin instead of Perez because Perez had lost the Labor Party primary to Rabin just prior to the elections. Now, to date, Yitzhak Shamir is without a doubt the strongest and most loyal national leader the state of Israel has ever had. He exemplified an inner strength and a sense of responsibility to Jewish history unfortunately sorely lacking from Israel's current political leadership. As today marks the anniversary of Prime Minister Yitzhak Shamir's departure from our world, we here at the Vision Movement urge listeners to honor his legacy by helping us to inspire the next generation with that same sense of responsibility for advancing Jewish history. Anyone who's interested in making a donation can check out the PayPal link in the show notes for this episode. Before signing off, I'd like to leave you with one last quote from Yitzhak Shamir. He says, If history remembers me at all, in any way, I hope it will be as a man who loved the land of Israel and watched over it in every way he could all his life. I hope this tribute episode to Prime Minister Yitzhak Shamir was inspirational for listeners and really to justice to the legacy of Israel's greatest national leader to date. This is Yudah Kohen of the Vision Movement, and this is the Next Stage Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to like and leave a review on all the relevant platforms, and check out the show notes at Vision Magazine by going to visionmag.org backslash the next stage 30.